Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Decent People, a a production of Decentral Media. I'm Matt Lysing, your host, and today we have a great guest, Adam Jackson, is a co-founder of um, Brain Trust, which is a decentralized collective of workers uh, in the tech industry that have come together to um, kind of cut out the middleman and and reimagine what freelance work could be like in a Web three environment. Um, Adam, how you doing? Doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, we will definitely get to brain trust, but um, what I'd love to do is just kind of go back uh, over your life history and where you came from and how you got to be in Web3 at this point. Um, so one of the things I like to do is just, you know, let's start off with um, where were you born and where, where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in a uh, suburb of Cleveland, Ohio called Brexville. Um, it's kind of like a, a nice kind of working class town. Um, my uh, My kind of Work history was, um, you know, when I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12, I, I started my own business in the summer cutting grass and the winter shoveling snow, because uh, those are kind of the two things you can do at that age in Ohio. And then by, I would say like age 13, 14, I was just burned out on outdoor manual labor. And um, I like, you know, this is like the early 90s. So, you know, computers were starting to come around, you know, the old 8086s, the you know, you're lucky if you had a hard drive, but I was really into computers and electronics and, um, and our town had a local computer store. So I just walked in and said, Hey, um, I just, I need a job that's indoors. I just, I can't be outside anymore. You know, the weather in Ohio is just horrific. And so, um, they're like, well, we're not hiring. And I said, look, I'll just like, like take the trash out and clean the toilets or whatever. And they said, yeah, okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll let you do that. And I was just happy to be inside. And then, you know, a couple, couple days in, I, you know, I got the guys to teach me how to build computers. And, um, that was my, ended up being my second business in, you know, all through high school is, um, I built custom PCs for law firms and, and other small businesses. And, um, you know, really just fell in love with technology and computers and started programming and, um, then I went to college. I, I did uh, computer science at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, had fun there, learned lots more, you know, database design and things like that, software architecture. And then um, barely, barely got out of that place with a bachelor's degree. So on all kinds of academic probation. Um, not, not a great student, obviously. Uh, when I was a kid, I, one of my first jobs was a paper boy. But uh, which, you know, in L.A. was fine, uh, you know, not the weather wasn't an issue. Um, I just liked riding my bike around and throwing papers onto people's, you know, front porches and stuff. And I was really bad at collecting money. So um, I don't think I ever made a cent. I think I was in the red the entire time. And that's kind of I think it was like maybe the first indication that I was going to be a writer. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, glad you didn't get hit by a car. That's uh, that could be a tough line of work in LA. Yeah. Yeah. One of the funnest parts was if it was raining, my mom would drive me around and I get to hang out the window and chuck them from the car. Uh, that was always fun. Are you still in LA now? Yeah. Uh, I, I was in New York for 13 years, um, but came back to Los Angeles in 2017. Um, been here ever since. Nice. I was, uh, I was just down there watching my 49ers get whooped by your Rams. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Great. Cool. Cool stadium though. Uh, so yeah, anyway, yeah. So so after I, I finished college, uh, I moved out here to the Bay Area. I mean, uh, uh, just in just north of San Francisco, Marin County. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I but we just moved here. I was in the city for you know fifteen years or so. And my, mine is sort of a story of like a computer software person sort of turned entrepreneur. Well, tell um, tell me a little bit more about your high school years. You were building computers for your friends. Um, yeah. What else I, were you a good student? Did you like school? Did you play sports? What was uh, what was what were those years like for you? Bad student, uh, poor athlete. Um, I'm you know I'm I'm just I've always sort of had an issue with authority, and that it's just a deep seated thing with me. And so the public school system wasn't great for me. Um, I you know would skip school as much as I could just 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 hang out in the shop and build computers. And this is back to custom PCs. This is back before like Compaq and Gateway and these like big giants kind of dominated and Apple was nowhere. And so, you know, you could build a a custom computer for a few thousand dollars and have a 50% profit margin. So that's really like, that was my outlet. That was, that was my passion. Um, We were, you know, basically dirt poor. So it was also like the CRT monitors that weighed as much as you did. Right. These were heavy, heavy machines, yeah. big, big metal towers, yeah. big, huge CRTs. And uh, yeah, I'd build them uh, in my shop and, um, and then drive them out to, you know, whatever office uh, ordered them. And it was, you know, I, I loved it and it was good money. You know, it was all, it was always all about making money as a kid. Yeah. So that entrepreneurial spirit was with you from the get-go, it sounds like, and you just didn't want anybody telling you what to do in school or otherwise. percent. So then, um, that led you to computer science at Vanderbilt? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I always loved computers and I was like, you know what, this is the way out of, you know, this kind of like lower middle class paycheck to paycheck stuff. I was like, you know, progr- professional programmer wasn't really a job yet, but it was like, this seems like a good way to make money and I'm reasonably good at it. So that, that's why I chose computer science. What did your parents do? Uh, my mom has been a, uh, a nurse uh, sort of a, kind of on and off. And then um, my dad is a, uh, a contractor, like basic, you know, like kind of construction business. Cool. So you wanted a path kind of out of there to get, get a little bit higher up. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so are we in the early internet years yet here when you're at Vanderbilt? Yeah. So I got to Vanderbilt in 98. Um, so, so very much in the early internet years, um, my dorm room was the first time I'd seen broadband and, um, yeah, it was all about HTML and scripting languages. And that was, you know, I just dove in on that stuff. Was that where you got your first email account at college? No, I actually got my first email account, um, probably in like 94. I was, I ran, I actually ran a mail server in my basement. Nice. Uh, I was really into uh, SMTP servers for some reason back then, you know, yeah. usual kid hobbies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a little older than you. So I was at the UC Santa Barbara and I got, that was my first email account, but that would have been 1991. So, um, uh, and so as you're going through at Vanderbilt and computer science, did, 
were you forming an idea of where you wanted to go and what like were you honing in on something or were you just like it's fun to be around computers and I like this this world it was yeah I, I had no no career goals uh other than stop being poor that was always the number one goal stop being poor um and you know I and I also knew I wanted to move to California um I'd never been to California but I was like, man, everything good seems to come from there. So I've got to figure it out. And, and actually LA was my first stop. I moved to, uh, moved to West Hollywood right out of school, actually. Yeah. That, that, that was a tough time in, in, in LA at that point. The yeah, it, early two thousands. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was, it was a rough part of town. Um, I actually moved into this house I found on Craigslist in the Hills um, and it was actually a recording studio where Coolio recorded Fantastic Voyage. <laughs> and uh, I rented the, there was like a shitty room on the lower level, you know, that like had leaked and everything. And, um, and I, but I got to meet Coolio. He was dating the wrestler China at the time. And, uh, and I started building websites for them. So wow. that's kind of how I paid the rent. Um, but then I quickly realized, you know, uh, West LA is, is, is no place for a, a young man with no money and a quarter million in student debt. Yeah. Uh, also, there was no tech back then, right? I mean, LA is an amazing tech center now, but not in the early 2000s. So I got the hell out of there and went to San Francisco. And it, it seemed like, I mean, we're also right here into the dot-com crash, right? <clears throat> that was, did that, how did that influence where you wanted to go? Yeah. I, so funny story about that too. My first job out of school. So, so I knew I didn't want to work for a big company. I actually, when I was a sophomore, I flew out to Sunnyvale. Yahoo was recruiting heavily, you know, back in the, you know, it was 99, 2000. And they flew me out to Sunnyvale and gave me this amazing offer and to quit school and, and be a developer for them. And Sunnyvale was the first time I was in California. And I was like, what, this place is terrible. I'm like, this isn't <laughs> California. I'm like, this is a fucking office park. I, uh, I always loved Sunnyvale because that's where Atari was based. Oh, interesting. And I loved Atari when I was a kid. I was like, you know, right in that Atari age group with asteroids and, and whatnot. But that, I didn't know anything about Sunnyvale at all, except it was in Northern California and that's where Atari was. So <laughs> yeah, well, I was expecting, you know, Malibu and Santa Monica and, and yeah. Sunnyvale is not anything like those places. So um, I, I turned the job down. Anyway, so the, the job I got out of school, I, I knew I didn't want to work for a big company. I, I, so I found this guy uh, who had started pets.com and toys.com in, in, the, in the web one wave and um, made a ton of money and is just a brilliant entrepreneur. And I was like, holy shit, this is going to be a great job. Um, and it just turned out like after you make all that money, like you're just not as motivated to to like, you know, hit the grand slam again. And so I was like kind of waiting for the next grand slam. And, uh, you know, it was just that was not the place for me. He's, he's a great guy. Brilliant. Did you actually work for Pets.com? No, it had imploded by then. So um, I was working for the for the founder that had started it. And um, but it was all you know, I was in his incubator, basically, and. You know, it was, um, I just, I just missed, I missed that window that on that, on that first uh, boom and bust cycle. Did it, um, I think one of the interesting things about blockchain and, um, you know, where we are today is I think a lot of people were influenced by the financial crisis of 2008 and sort of seeing maybe the next decade of their work career sort of evaporate. Um, did you, 
was there a parallel to that in the dot-com crash when you were back in, in San Francisco in, the, in those days when everything had sort of just, like you said, imploded? Yeah, I mean, I got there as like right after the, the bomb went off, you know, and it's like, I didn't, I didn't have the context I probably should have. I, I just, I was walking around, I was like, wow, this is like, this is an amazing city. Like when I got to San Francisco, I'm like, why is everyone so bummed out? You know, like, <laughs> um, but, but it, it was actually a really pleasant time to be in San Francisco. You know, like everyone, a lot of people left. So rents were low, <clears throat> probably like, like what it is now, except there wasn't rampant crime and drug use in the streets. Um, but, you know, it was like, it was, it, it, it sort of returned to its creative roots. It was my interpretation. So I like, I went and lived in the Presidio and got some roommates and, you know, just like enjoyed my twenties in San Francisco, being a freelance developer and, and like just loving the city. And it was, you know, it was before that, that kind of second wave started cranking up. Yeah. I, I was there then too. Um, I went to UC Berkeley for grad school for journalism and, I was about to graduate. I'd gotten an internship with the Financial Times in San Francisco, and I was hoping to turn that into a job with them. And then the dot-com boom, you know, crashed. They put a hiring freeze out. Um, and so I was kind of left high and dry. Um, but you're right. I remember um, the, the thing I most remember was the traffic between like Palo Alto and San Francisco. It used to be brutal. And then it just disappeared. Um, <laughs> you could just like fly down what is it, the 280 or whatever, you know, like in like 20 minutes. <laughs> and um, yeah. So um, how did, so then you um, also looking at your resume, you started getting into, um, I guess it's like web two kind of advertising, online sales. And can, can you tell me a little bit about, about that experience? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, th this was my game plan when I got to San Francisco. I was about a quarter million in student debt and like, Vanderbilt was charging me like 12% or something. But by the way, like that school and many others, they're just banks that happen to have tax-free academic zones on their yeah. property. Like fucking scam, total yeah, fuck. That's amazing. God. That, that, that degree didn't do shit for me. Anyone who asked me about Vanderbilt, I told them, don't go there. Don't go anywhere, but definitely don't go there. Total waste. And so I was like, had this boot on my neck of student debt. Um, and I was barely making the interest payments on it. So I set up shop in the Presidio and started freelance programming. And this will kind of, you know, lead to, to my, what, what I'm doing now with brain trust. But, um, so my day job was getting gigs to program. I was a PHP developer. I was building shopping carts, uh, for e-commerce. So I built like, like reef sandals. I don't know if you remember reef sandals. Oh, yeah. They would have a bottle opener on the bottom of them. You take your shoe yeah. off. Yeah. And open a beer with your disgusting shoe and put it back on. Yeah. So I built. I, I, I have a pair of reef flip flops. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Right there with you. And so I, so I like I built the first e-commerce site for them. So that was my day job was a freelance developer. But I realized like, <clears throat> you know, I'm never going to dig out at this rate. You know, um, I was like back then programmers weren't paid as well as they are now. So it was, um, you know, I, I was doing okay. But um, and then at night I would try to think of ideas like to start web-enabled businesses that could have a little more scalable revenue. And so that was my night job. And, and so my first one, I built a bunch of stuff that didn't work and a bunch of garbage nobody wanted. Um, but, but my first one that got traction was this local shopping website called marketsquare.com. And basically I, I would take my little binder and walk up Union Street, down Chestnut Street, up Polk Street in San Francisco and go to the small businesses and say, hey, would you like me to make you a website to use internet traffic to, to drive foot traffic? And none of them had websites back then. This is 2003, 2004. 
and it, it caught on it, it like I was we were the first ones to get local SEO you know um and so that finally like got me out of the you know the the working 20 hours a day just to kind of get by and um I merged that company with with another one that was doing the same thing and we raised venture capital and that's that was a, my first business we we kind of got scale with and, and ultimately were acquired by Intuit. Wow, that's great. Um, and then <clears throat> did you, um, have you seen parallels with like, the? <clears throat> you were kind of on the web one sort of side of things there um, when things are still pretty much decentralized, like you were going around and building websites for people. And then web two came in where there were a lot bigger companies and and um, kind of monopolized that that space and and, as we'll get to, you know, started started taking rents out on people and being in middleman position. Um, but do you do you do you see a parallel between like the Web One experience you had back then in the early online advertising days and just e-commerce days to the Web Three moment we're in now? Absolutely. I mean, think about it like a sine wave, right? Like, you know, Web One was all about the power of the individual, the small business, right? As you just said, there was there was no big aggregation yet. Um, and then web two Yelp, Yelp comes in and just chokes everybody to death. Right. And now if you're a small business, like forget having your own website, Yelp ranks above you for your own business name. Right. And they're famous rank collectors, bullshit website. Um, and then that's web two, right. Just choking the value away from everybody and consolidating into large public companies. And web three is that untangling again, right. It's all about the individual. It's all about owning the value you create on the internet, owning your own identity, owning your own data, owning the way you make a living, right? That, that is the essence of Web3. And so to get to that, um, tell me about how did you, did you, I would imagine Bitcoin was your first experience with cryptocurrency. How did, who, how did you um, learn about it? It was 2011 and uh, a good buddy of mine runs or used to run uh, a, a, a sort of a, a ring of uh, online casinos. He's based in Europe and South America, you know, wherever, wherever he's based, not here. Um, but anyway, so credit, you know, he couldn't take credit cards. And so he came across Bitcoin as payment in his online casinos. And he, he showed it to me and I didn't even read the white paper. I'm just like, man, this is like one of the smartest and richest people I know, this guy. And, uh, and if he thinks Bitcoin's cool, I'm going to buy some. And so that was my, my first exposure in 2011. Yeah. Was there a point where you got into the technology and understood the sort of like the, the breakthrough of blockchain and, and decentralized, you know, like a trustless basically market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so in 2012, I actually started my, my third company called Doctor on Demand. And I, um, that's a, a large video telemedicine service. So it's like this, but with the doctor and prescribing and whatever. Um, back before Zoom, right? So we were actually the, the first ones to do um, video medicine. Uh, I started it with Dr. Phil, who's a daytime TV personality. Um, it was, you know, sort of a cool, you know, so like I was just starting to get into Bitcoin, but then Dr. Phil came along and said, hey, I need to start a video medical service do you want to build it? And I was like, man, it was my dream to build a consumer brand. And so um, I dropped everything and, and teamed up with him in 2012. We grew that into a large healthcare company. And by 2016, I was not qualified to run it anymore, basically. So we we put in like a real CEO, a real manager. Now, this is the Dr. Phil of um, Oprah fame? Exactly. Yeah. Same guy, but he wasn't as big back then. I don't, I've been taking it. Or was I he? he? I think he was bigger back then, actually. Oh, wow. Because no one watches TV anymore, right? So, um, 
I don't, I, I can't imagine his ratings are as good now as they were then. Um, anyway, he's a monster, right? 30 million viewers a week. And so that was a part of how we grew that business. But when I unwound my day-to-day -day operate, my day-to-day -day role at Dr. On a Man in 2016, that's when I went full on head over heels. I participated in the Ethereum crowd sale, was in the Binance crowd sale, a bunch of other crowd sales for stuff that didn't work as well. Um, and that's when I really became obsessed with the technology. What um, Was there a moment where you kind of, a lot of people loved Bitcoin, but then they, when they saw what Ethereum enabled, um, really kind of had a light bulb moment. Was it, was it something like that for you or tell me 100%. about? 100%. My, uh, when I wrote my first smart contract and um, minted my first ERC-20 token, my head exploded. I mean, I, could, I couldn't believe, uh, Bitcoin is great, right? And I, I love it. I own it. I think it's amazing. I think it'll become the world's reserve currency someday. I, all of those things. But it's just, it's not Turing complete, right? You, it's not, I know they can bolt shit onto it or whatever, but like ERC-20 changed the world, right? And I know you have you know the amazing interview with Vitalik. Like, to me, that that changed everything for me. It, 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 the part of my imagination it captured was these tokens can replace shares of stock as value capture and control instruments. And that could fundamentally change the way people organize for work, right? That, that was the thing that got stuck in my head. And to this day is a, you know, a, a brightly burning torch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, a, a totally new way of capital formation, you know, that that's yeah. Decentralized and um, yeah. So it, so was that the, the sort of spark that led to, um, to brain trust? Eventually. Yeah. So um, I started just buying every token I could find personally, and I've been an angel investor for a long time um, and then became solely focused on crypto angel investing. This is 2016, 2017. Um, then in late 2017, I, I teamed up with a couple of buddies, uh, Martin Green and Jay Posner to start a digital asset management firm called Cambrian. And three of us started Cambrian and we have very different backgrounds. I'm a software guy and an entrepreneur. The, the two of them are, are financial wizards and traders and portfolio, really skilled portfolio managers. So we started this, this Cambrian and um, I wrote a paper back then called The Ownership Economy. I didn't publish it. I just wrote it for myself. And it was basically contemplated this idea of, you know, Web2 networks are so extractive, so capital intensive. There's like, they're, they, they did, they unlocked amazing value in society, but they had a bunch of downsides. You know, think about the web two playbook. It was like raise billions of dollars, use that money to subsidize one or both sides of the marketplace. If you're lucky enough or good enough or both, you get liquidity in that marketplace. And, you know, you come out the other end, a fully investor owned network. And those investors then need a return on their capital, rightfully so. No, no problem with that, right? Yeah, I love capitals. But, but where does that return come from? The rake. Higher and higher fees extract more and more value to, you know, so in, when you do that, you erode your own network effects, right? You create misaligned incentives between the owner operator of the network and the folks who make their living on that network, whether it's a Yelp restaurant or an Uber driver or an Upwork worker, fiber worker, whatever. And so I, this thesis I wrote called user-owned economy contemplated a better way. This is before we had the term web three, but I thought, why, why not invert that playbook? So raise a little bit of money, build software that can essentially reward the community for 
building the network, right? Grow supply, curate supply, grow demand, onboard demand. And instead of hiring 50,000 people to grow supply and demand, you have software do it. And then the software rewards those people for their contributions programmatically. There's where the token comes in, right? Yeah. And so, and so what you do, so you cut out the like raise billions part and you cut out the, now we need a high rake to pay the investors back part, right? You, you change those things. What does that do? Well, it brings fees down to nothing. Awesome. Which means bigger transactions can touch your market. Awesome. So people can make a better living there. And three, no misalignment incentives, right? The folks who create the value on the network, keep it instead of a VC, a hedge fund, or, you know, the public markets. And so I wrote that paper and I was still, by this time, like I, you know, I started and, and exited three companies. Um, I was a, you know, a grizzled entrepreneur and I, th I thought I was done operating businesses and um, I thought I was just gonna be a full-time investor. And this, this paper I wrote was an investment thesis. And then I, I sort of flew around the world and um, this is 2017, 2018, right? Very early. Um, and I was trying to invest against this idea and I would meet teams of young, brilliant people who understood this concept, but had never built anything, right? They, they had no operational experience. So they were really not investable. And I, could, I just couldn't deploy capital against this idea, but it wouldn't leave me alone. Right? I, I was just, it was like, it kept me up at night, literally. So I finally turned to my partners at Cambrian and said, look, I got to do this, right? I, I, I just got to start one of these just to prove it works. Um, so I, and they were super supportive and, and they actually seeded, we seeded brain trust. This is what brain trust, it was where brain trust came from. We, we see Cambrian seeded brain trust. I stepped down in my GP role and started running brain trust full time. And that was, yeah. that was 2018. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, because this whole model is, is how, um, I first understood Ethereum and the, the sort of promise that it held was, um, I write about this in my book of, of something like you know, like we said, there's Uber, right? But Uber, the company takes around 30% um, of, of the fees. And so um, they're, you know, they're the middleman. And so let's put that on a blockchain. Now you've got a coin called CarCoin, let's say, and you've got an app that's like a smart contract and you just connect drivers and riders and they need to use CarCoin to, you know, access it. And then the demand for CarCoin goes up the, the, the software developers who built, you know, the CarCoin app hold some of it. So that's where they're, you know, that's where they're getting paid. Um, and that made a ton of sense to me, but then it never, um, it never seemed to really catch on. Um, and I, I wonder what, you know, what you think, was it the, the, um, the doc, or, uh, sorry, the ICO boom and bust that, that, that kind of killed that model or what, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, it's, it's amazing that, that you, you, you described in two sentences my exact thesis for brain trust. It, it's the exact architecture for brain trust. When I wrote exactly what you're describing, it, it, could, it could apply to any two-sided marketplace. It could be cars and driver or riders and drivers, uh, food delivery, restaurant, consumer, in, uh, information worker, client, whatever. Um, I was obsessed with the Uber model as well. And... Um, really dug in on what it would take to build that. Again, this is 2018. I decided relatively quickly, like this, there's so many reasons this is, it's not, this is not going to be very easy to pull off in a real world environment, not non-digitally procured services or goods. Um, the wallets suck, the blockchains are too slow. It's too hard to explain a token, 
blah, 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 right? A lot of those things are still true, sadly. Um, and so, yeah, so then the 2017 thing came along and that was just fraud, right? And it's just like this good old fraud, just like you're seeing with the NFTs now, not, not all NFTs, obviously, but like lots of people just defrauding their peers. And, and that's, you know, a sad truth for anytime you mix money with technology. Um, but, you know, the, the reason we did knowledge workers you know, connecting with clients with brain trust is because it's it's just it's easier to explain a token to a knowledge worker and it's easier to prove something a job was done, right? And thus you can accrue reputation and payment and all that stuff on the network. So that's why we started with what brain trust does now instead of ride sharing. My greatest hope is that someone takes the playbook we have established with brain trust and copies it to you know food, people, package, delivery, last mile. Yeah. So for listeners, um, let's let's get to brain trust now. It's so what you've done is um, <clears throat> instead of a company like Fiverr or Up, up um, Work, where there's a centralized middleman in the, there, you the members, uh, the, the the tech workers and the freelancers who make up your network um, basically own 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 the company and and vote on proposals and and there's a token involved. Um, I'm probably not doing that justice, but. Um, so maybe you could just explain that real quickly and, and how um, what more traditional um, freelance, you know, kind of job sites, they take out, you know, a pretty good chunk uh, for their for their services, basically. Yeah. So Braintrust is a labor marketplace that connects knowledge workers with clients that need them. That's not new. Yeah. The way it's the economics are new. The way it's owned and controlled and governed is new. So I'll just do like maybe old way, new way to try to sort of paint the picture. Um, let's just take freelance programmers or designers or whatever, like old way, you jump on Upwork or Fiverr and bid on a job and Upwork or Fiverr takes 25 to 50%, you know, depending on whatever game they're playing that day. Or you go to Accenture or Deloitte, or PwC, or Booz Allen. And you, know, you sort of just turn yourself over to them and they rent you out to the client, Bank of America, JP Morgan, whoever, and they give you 75 bucks an hour and they charge a client 400 bucks an hour. That's a real stat, by the way, I'm not making that number up. Wow. And so those, that's the old way, right? You're, you're either sort of like out there bidding you know, with, with 700 other people on an Upwork or a Fiverr, your hit rate's really low, and then you give half your income away, or you turn yourself over to the cubicle prison for stability and pay, but you know, you're getting screwed. Uh, and not to mention, you, you don't get to choose what you work on. You, you go where they're told. Old way, new way on brain trust. You create your profile, prove your work history, prove your skills. There are so many clients that need you. We have 10 times more demand than supply on brain trust. You pick what you want to work on. There's no, um, you know, long pitches. There's no like constant bidding over and over and losing. You pick what you want to work on. You work on it. You say your hourly rate. What's your rate? hundred bucks. You get a hundred bucks. We don't take anything from you. You get, you get all your money. And then what you want to leave for three months and go to Hawaii. Cool. We'll see you when you come back. Right. So you get the best of flexibility, you get all your money, no one's skimming off of you. Oh, and you're gonna to earn tokens in the network. So one, it's one token, one vote. So you can 
actually have a say in the rules that govern the network where you make a living. Old way, new way. That's web two, web three. Yeah. And so I was looking at your stats today. You've got almost 45,000 people in the network. Um, you, the average project size is uh, 72,000 and change. Um, and you guys have earned $38.3 million. Uh, the Brain Trust community has earned $38.3 million. Um, so that's <clears throat> amazing. And it's a really cool indication, I think, of, uh, you know, Web3 is so new, there's not a lot to point to. You know, it's kind of an unfortunate um, reality that <clears throat> it's still a lot of it is, is hard to put a finger on. But here is, is, is a network that's working. And like you said before, the, the incentives are aligned. So, um, you know, it was funny, a, a striking resemblance, um, sort of parallel came to me as I was reading the other day about like mining in proof of work systems where obviously the validators and the computers are, are there to validate transactions and, and um, you know, do the work to, to, to put the next batch out on the blockchain. And it's, it occurred to me that, that the people you have in your network who are validating new people and making sure that jobs are good, uh, for like, you know, like the, the miners get free Bitcoin or free ether for doing their work. And then you, in your system, they get uh, your, your token. And uh, I was just curious if that ever occurred to you or if that was like purposeful or if it just kind of happened that way. Yeah, it's a cool analogy. And, and it, it, absolutely, it absolutely is by design. Our miners, right? We sit on top of Ethereum, so we don't need layer one proof of work mining. We are secured by the Ethereum network. Our miners, validators, are folks that invite other talent and then vet that talent. So you get tokens when you invite other people and you get more tokens if you help prove, you know, validate them, interview them, screen them. Then you get tokens when you invite clients and you get tokens for onboarding those clients. And so all the things that this big network, which will do, you know, it's done 38 million already, it'll clear 200 probably this year. All the things that we would have hired tens of thousands of employees for, we just have the community do it. And in exchange, they earn tokens, and those tokens represent ownership and control in the network where they make their living. Yeah, it's a fascinating model, um, and I, like you said, it, I really think it, it seems ripe for other industries um, and other services. Um, so, uh, this this has been fantastic, Adam. I'm really um, appreciate you taking the time and, and helping us understand what you guys are doing. Um, what a great story you have and uh, just really uh, incredible stuff. So thank you very much. Matt, thanks so much for having me on. Big, big fan of your work. And uh, it was a pleasure to sit down with you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Adam. Take care. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.